We've been talking with workers all across the country, and for the most part, we can sum up their problems in one sentence. The economy is broken. When we're speaking with cashiers at grocery stores or truck drivers at gas stations or doctors in the middle of the country, they all share stories about striving for more, but the deck just not being stacked in their favor. This got us thinking. We live at a time where technology can be optimized for everything. So what would happen if we started to optimize the economy for the American worker? This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. America was, for many people, for hundreds of years, the land of opportunity. It still is in many ways, but for a lot of people, it isn't. There's opportunities here that are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to LinkedIn's Work in Progress, a podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, senior editor Caroline Fairchild. And I'm LinkedIn managing editor Chip Cutter. I'm heading up a year-long reporting effort for LinkedIn from traveling across the country to talk to people about what it means to earn a living now. Chip, I think you and I, and hopefully our listeners also agree, that it's a very interesting time to be alive and in the working world. More and more manual and dangerous work can be done by machines instead of people. Tech advances are leading to breakthroughs in critical areas like healthcare, and it's really never been easier to access information. These all seem like super great innovations and good things for us. So why does it always feel like technology is working against us instead of for us? I talk with workers all the time about this, and they say that they feel the system is just stacked against them. They feel that tech and machines have an outsized impact on their jobs, and they feel that their corporations and managers ultimately care about the shareholders, the investors, and not employees. But on this idea that tech really dictates our lives, uh, it's something I think we just keep coming back to. I spoke with Colleen Ryan. She's a 23-year-old cashier. She works at a Whole Foods near Chicago. And she told me that there's actually a term on the store floor that gets thrown about from time to time. And it deals with their scheduling software. We do have a term called, like, you got Kronos. She explained that being Kronos, which refers to the maker of the scheduling software, refers to a case where workers, for some reason or another, get scheduled for three-hour shifts. They don't even have time to get a glass of water. They can't leave the store floor. But it speaks to this bigger issue of just how technology can have lots of different unexpected impacts on our day-to-day lives. But she thinks there's a way that there could be a more humane system. I think that Systems like Kronos could have better algorithms to kind of detect that, like, it's not ethical to wait three hours to give a break in certain certain positions. Um, but I have never worked in Kronos to make a schedule, so I don't know how flexible it is. Like, if my managers could be, like, seeing that if they had the time. So that's the question. Are the machines to blame or is the software merely doing what the humans have told it to do? It's almost as if as the technology is advancing, the workers who you would think are going to benefit from this technology are almost being left behind. I think it's really easy, particularly in Silicon Valley, to focus on the negative, kind of the doom and gloom of the future of work. But for this episode, I wanted to speak with the man who might as well be dubbed kind of the internal optimist on the future of work. Tim O'Reilly is the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media, and he's been researching and thinking about the future of work even before it was cool to think about the future of work. He recently authored a book as well, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Tim, 
thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Glad to be with you. So Tim, I definitely don't have to tell you that there's been a ton of hysteria as of late about the robots taking over all of our jobs. And I know that you're fond of saying that they will do that, but only if that's what we ask them to do. So unpack that a little bit for me. What do you mean by that? The fundamental opportunity of technology is to do more. When we introduced the Industrial Revolution, when the Industrial Revolution overtook us and made it much cheaper to make things, we made more things, right? And so we put more people to work. And you see this centuries of progress which came from the augmentation of human beings to do things that were previously impossible, you know, and we got better and better at it. First, we were doing things with coal, and then we discovered oil, and we discovered solar. We figured out how to fly. We sped up our transportation. Why should it be different now? And the question I have, and and that I ask in my book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us, is what is keeping us from continuing down that path? And I do think that there is something that's keeping us from going down that path. And it it is really, we are telling our systems that the thing that they should be optimizing for is not people, but stock price, for corporate profits driving stock price. We had this idea starting around 1970 that if you optimize for corporate profits and shareholders, the businesses would do the right thing. But all kinds of people came into the system who started gaming it, and all of a sudden, It's not quite working that way. We're hollowing out the economy. But the system is doing exactly what we told it to do. Get rid of people if that improves corporate profit. And so now the opportunity is instead to take all this magical technology we've been developing it and bring it back to building a more human-centered world. And your book, which you mentioned, points to examples of ways that tech companies are either creating this human-centered world or not, and then some potential lessons from that for the economy. Unpack some of that for us. Look at Uber and Lyft, for example. It's really interesting because they're really two halves of a whole of the way that market evolved. Uber had this wonderful idea of this magical app that would connect passengers and drivers in real time you know, using the power of GPS and smartphones. But their idea was to do that for black car service. And then Sunil Paul with Sidecar, and then very quickly copied by Lyft, came up with this idea of collaborative delivery of that car service using people with their ordinary cars. Uber didn't adopt that until about a year later. So here's these two streams of innovation that come together. Now think about that, and then they've been innovating on top of that ever since with how do you get better dispatch, how do you get better matching, how do you build enough of a marketplace with enough drivers and enough passengers in real time, and really understanding the dynamics of algorithmic matching in a labor marketplace. And now we go, well, now it's time for the next wave of combinatorial innovation where we take some of those innovations and apply them to other parts of the labor market. Because one of the things you have to understand It's very easy to see that the boss of an Uber driver is an algorithm. It's less easy to see that the boss of a worker at The Gap or McDonald's is also managed by an algorithm. But the algorithm is very different. It says, show up at this time. You know, we're going to split your work into micro tasks. We're not doing ordinary shifts anymore. You know, we need more people for lunchtime, so you get a two-hour shift. Oh, and by the way, we don't want to give you more than a total of 30 hours in a week because then we'd have to pay you benefits. Here's this profit-seeking scheduling algorithm. And now we could say, well, why can't we take the part of regular work that has benefits 
And let's say, okay, we can now track all of these uh, people, whether they're working part-time uh, in five different employers, and everybody will pay a fractional share of the benefits because, hey, these computer systems give us the power to do all that magical tracking. And that will take away some of the incentives that employers have to basically keep people from getting full-time work to avoid paying benefits, which because of an anachronism in the system, that's, again, this wonderful matching marketplace technology. Let's take it to other parts of the economy. But in the process, let's make it better for people, not just for the company. The scheduling software is actually really interesting. I've been doing some research on this for another story, and it's funny just to see how many companies are talking about enhanced scheduling technology. I want to ask a bigger question about algorithms. And you talked about the algorithms will do what we tell them to do. But what happens when the algorithms kind of write themselves. I want to play a clip from Ray Dalio. He's the, the chairman and chief investment officer of Bridgewater, which is the world's largest hedge fund. AI is not a new thing, but what are the criteria and how they derived? And we now have a facility in which the computer gets to come up with the algorithm rather than the thinking coming up with the algorithm. Yep. Um, the question is whether there'll be deep understanding or whether there won't be deep understanding. So do you worry about that? Do you worry about the algorithms kind of taking on a life of their own? Yes and no. I'm actually more hopeful about that because part of what happens with algorithms is, first of all, we train them. These new deep learning algorithms, for example, we give them a set of training data. And part of what we start to discover is our own biases in the training data we gave them. And so we can start to see what we asked of them. Because even if they come up with their own way of solving a problem, they're still actually, it's what's called supervised learning. It's not yet unsupervised learning where they're coming up with completely independent goals. So for example, we're like, we want you to identify photos or we want you to modify photos and create art or create music. We're still telling them what to do. We're still expressing our wish for the genie. You know, and they really are like genies. It's a great metaphor. We ask them to do something and they may do it in a mysterious way, but still what we ask them, and we have to be very careful what we ask. You sound very hopeful about this. You're taking kind of a hopeful angle, but you've also written that this is a very dangerous moment for us in our history. And when you hear guys like Elon Musk talking about the potential of technology revolting against us, you can feel that hysteria. So why aren't we in a more positive place as a culture about this? Where is this sadness or scariness coming from, do you think? First of all, there has been a decades-long hollowing out of the economy for ordinary people. There are many, many causes. But I actually believe that the biggest one is this rogue algorithm of optimize for corporate profit. You know, we've been sold a bill of goods. And that's one of the things I try to make a distinction between. There's a true market of human exchange where I do something for you, you do something for me, and that's the real market. And then there's a financial betting market of stocks, which is supposed to reflect the underlying reality, but it's increasingly gamed and it's influenced by expectations and hope. Here's Apple or Google, which are incredibly profitable companies, and they're valued maybe 20, 30 times earnings in the stock market. Why? Because there's an expectation that they're going to become even more dominant in the future. And then that somehow they will begin to exploit that and, and produce enormous profits. So the bet on the future is, is what's in the, the betting markets. And you know, we've been optimizing for the betting market rather than optimizing for the real market. Because in the real market, 
you know, the most important thing we can do is to keep the circulatory system of the economy going. And that's actually customers, which means you have to actually find ways to pay people and get money going because all these companies are going to fall down one day if they don't have customers. Tim, we talked about how this kind of total shareholder supremacy, this view that shareholders are the ones we should really be optimizing for, we've talked about how that's hurt workers. But do you have any optimism that this can really change? I mean, we've spent decades trying to make shareholders happy. If you're a public company, how do you change that? How do you actually get out of that dynamic? It would seem like that's something that's really hard to break. I think it is very hard to break. But I I will say this. One of the most powerful things in the world is an idea about how things can be better. And it's going to emerge from you know, the, the, the contested ideas of many. You know, there's people who are thinking about universal basic income. There are people who are thinking about how do we actually create more work? How do we solve more problems? I think of Elon Musk as somebody who's like, oh, okay, you know, the, one of the ways we solve this economy is we need to deal with climate change. Let's actually get with it. Let's build solar rooftops. Let's kickstart the, the car industry. Oh, by the way, let's go to Mars. You know, all these things that are like the big ideas that can, you know, kickstart an economy. There's other people, I think of, of Seth Sternberg and crew at Honor who are saying, wow, let's bring on demand to caregiving. Let's make caregiving a, a new kind of profession. Talk to us a little bit about why historically caregiving, whether that's for children or for older workers, why that is something that hasn't been optimized for yet and what we can do to change that. Yeah. Well, I think one piece of it, quite frankly, it's sexism. It, you know, it was generally considered women's work. And if you think about, you know, even in very traditional economies, you know, the hunter-gatherer societies, women tend to do one thing, men tend to do another. And now, of course, in, in our modern society, we have, you know, uh, we've broken that down, but we still carry that heritage. And that heritage of the men who used to go out to hunt ended up going out to work on the farm, ended up work, going out to work at the factory, ended up going out to work at the, you know, the blue collar or the white collar job. And we still have the sense, well, the, the caregiving belonged to the women who stayed at home. And yeah, we've gone beyond that, but we, we we're carrying this baggage because we haven't actually updated our society and said, wow, what do we really value? And and one of the things that I do, I think a lot about is something that Clayton Christensen uh, called the law of conservation of attractive profits. And it's the idea that when one thing becomes a commodity, something else becomes valuable. And what I've been thinking about in the age of AI, a lot of the things that men have traditionally been like, this is our bailiwick, are becoming commoditized by the new generation of cognitive machines. And this is a fabulous opportunity and time uh, for the things that were traditionally thought of as women's work, although I think they really are human work. The job of caring, for example, uh, to become valuable because we go, wow, that is actually differentiation. And it's sort of interesting because across the entire economy, when things are commodities, you make them more valuable with creativity, But we have to understand that that is actually a key to competitive advantage in the next era, because then you harness the profit motive towards human ends rather than harnessing the profit motive towards this game that doesn't really matter to most of us. 
But I think in talking about this game, we've talked a lot about kind of the onus being on the employer to do more, to pay more for these caregivers, for instance. But what about on the other side of this, the workers themselves? How does what you're talking about relate when we're going into an economy where a worker might not have one employer? A worker has now multiple jobs that she has to cobble together to make an income. How does that kind of add to this whole complexity of how workers are treated, what they should have in an economy that maybe could be more fair to them? Yeah, I I think we really need to reinvent labor organizing. But we also have to have uh, a policy component to that because, of course, one of the big reasons why we changed focus in our economy is we basically kneecapped labor. And, of course, labor did... Labor organizing became corrupt in the same way that business becomes corrupt, where it was sort of like, well, we're just in it for ourselves. And, and we've lost sight of the fact that here was this movement that started, as so many do, as this positive force, and then, of course, became self-serving. So let's go back to its roots, you know, and go, when is it important for people to have a voice, to be able to stand up to employers? And how do we do that in the 21st century? And it's really fascinating because after World War I, there was massive unemployment, you know, returning soldiers, you know, camped out on the Washington Mall, and actually they were, you know, they were fired on by the U.S. government, you know, killed. After World War II, all the right policy responses. We're going to rebuild our enemies, you know, we're going to invest in the future, you know, the Marshall Plan. We're going to take our returning soldiers, and we're not going to have them unemployed camping out on the mall. And we're going to do the GI Bill. We're going to give them the ability to buy homes, go to school. So think about, these were investments in people. And so, uh, you know, we, we had this you know, what we now look back on is this sort of anomalous period of good middle-class jobs. And it was because we were afraid that the people were going to be really unhappy. We, we end up with another interwar period like we had after the first war, and it would end up in you know, World War III. And so we basically put people first. And when we did that, it worked. But here's the thing. Every algorithm goes wrong over time. You know, every system, you start doing it and, and you get bad actors who game the system. And it, so it's a constant effort and a constant vigilance, constant management. We just have to debug the economy. It's a continual process of improvement, engagement with these massive problems to always get better. And I don't think I'd go as far as to say that we are coming out of World War III right now, but there is a lot of political and social unrest in our country right now. A lot of people are unhappy. A lot of people feel left behind. If you had President Trump's ear or any of his administration, what would be some quick policies that you would put in place to change the dynamic in the country? Well, I'm not sure that getting them through Trump would be very likely, but there's definitely some policy changes that I would make. And and the first one probably is I would try to distinguish between the real economy of goods and services exchanged by people in this betting economy. You know, so you think about capital gains tax. We're kind of talking about, well, we want to lower the rate. And I go, you know, there's two different kinds of capital gains. There's a company that invests in building a factory. You just build a company. I've, you know, I've been running my company for 40 years, right? And there were investors who took a bet early on. This is real investment. And then there's somebody who says, you know, man, I think Apple might go up. I'm going to place a bet that Apple will go up. Apple doesn't need their money. There's no investment there. It's a bet. And in fact, sometimes it's a rigged bet. So I would call that gambling. And I go, okay, so let's have a gambling tax. And let's make a distinction between investment in the real economy and try to encourage more of that investment. You know, because right now we have framed, our entire system frames people as a cost to be eliminated. 
And I think people actually feel that. I think people that I've been talking to across the country would say that they feel like they're being treated that way. One reason we wanted to do this project was to try to get in touch with some of these folks, to talk to people in all different places and in all different parts of their lives. I want to play one clip. I talked with Arthur James Vitito IV. I met him in Oklahoma City, and he's worked everywhere from Taco Bell to Sonic. He's been a, a cook and a manager. He said that he feels that the American dream increasingly just feels like an illusion. I don't even know what the American dream is. My American dream is to just be able to eat every day, to be able to pay my bills and have a place to live. Because right now, I don't even have a place to live. I'm going from place to place. Yeah. I'm going from one friend's house to another friend's house. And my my American dream is just to be able to live, man. You know, to keep clothes on my back and then be able to, to not worry about where my next meal is coming from and to be able to not worry about rent when I, when I do have to make rent and stuff like that. He talked a lot with me about minimum wage issues, wanting those to be increased. But for people like Arthur, how do we restore this feeling like the American dream is is alive, is within grasp? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is to accept the truth of what he's saying. America was, for many people, for hundreds of years, the land of opportunity. And it still is in many ways, but for a lot of people it isn't. And if our goal is to build a better world for people, We have to take that incredibly seriously. And we have to actually take that as a a challenge. How do we actually create opportunity for all so that uh, the American dream is restored? And, And we have to take it seriously for the world because there is this wonderful capability of technology to make us all richer. And in particular, as a technologist, I wanna see more of the people from my industry putting that front and center. And that's really what I I try to get across in the book, you know, tools for thinking about the future, tools for understanding how all these pieces fit together, tools for different ideas into the same framework so that you can see things that were not otherwise obvious. But then, above all, commit yourself, you know, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who, who is inventing the future, to take seriously the complaint of someone like this who says, my opportunity isn't there anymore. I'm barely getting by and go, wow, how can we make that better? Well, I think you and I can both agree that we hope technologists come together to debug the economy together. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great interview. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for uh, doing this work because understanding the future of work and making it better is itself an incredibly important job. That was Tim O'Reilly talking to us about some key lessons from the tech industry that we could potentially use to fix some of the problems with the economy. Chip, I really like what Tim was saying, but it's challenging for me to imagine a world in which this quote-unquote betting economy that he speaks about doesn't hold the weight that it currently does today. Well, I think you're right. There's never going to be a time when shareholders aren't supreme. I I think it's overly optimistic for us to think that that might change anytime soon. But it's not an impossible idea. I recently spoke with Eric Ries. He's the author of the book Lean Startups, which of course is kind of like a cult classic in Silicon Valley. But now he's working on this new idea that he's dubbing the long-term stock exchange. The long-term stock exchange is a new way for companies to be public without the short-term pressure. For most companies, what maximizing shareholder value means in practice is maximizing the ticker tape today, this week, this quarter. And that even, there's actually no 
intellectual theory that says that that makes any sense at all, right? You're like reading the signal into the noise. I know so many managers who like when the stock price is up this month, they think whatever I was working on that month is what caused it to go up. And if it's down, oh, the markets must not like what I'm doing right now. And like, that makes no sense. So even if you buy into the idea that companies should serve their shareholders over what time horizon? Some shareholders have an average holding period of public equities of 10 minutes. And others, it's more like four or five years. So what Reese is really driving at there is that if we increase the amount of time that shareholders have to hold a stock, maybe it'll give companies more incentive to do things like invest in their employees, which we know is something that a lot of workers around the country are talking about. But I also think we need to talk about how we pay workers. This is something that comes up a lot when I'm talking with workers who rely on minimum wage jobs. I spoke with Frank Washington III. He had just moved to Indiana from Minnesota, where he said that state had a much better way of thinking about how it calculates the minimum wage. Who's going to survive off of seven or eight dollars an hour? And that's not even that's not even covering rent costs. What Minnesota do is they actually compare their minimum wage to everybody rents costs. And I would like Indiana's to be probably uh, above $10 an hour. That's all I can say, really. So what Frank was telling me was that the minimum wage needs to obviously tie to the cost of living. That There needs to be a bigger conversation about how we pay workers who do rely on hourly work and how we need to make sure that we're constantly adjusting those wages to reflect just the fact that it's harder to pay for things. And on top of rethinking how we pay hourly workers, there's this whole class of work right now that in many instances, people aren't getting paid at all to do. I think back to what Tim said about caregiving and stay-at-home parents. Robots can't raise our children, and as the U.S. population ages, we're going to need more help in the home. But how do we get there? Well, I think companies need to rethink how they pay workers, and initiatives like the long-term stock exchange need to take off. But also, we're going to need to have a pretty massive cultural revolution to get the economy to where I think all of our guests want it to be. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and all the issues we discussed this week using hashtag work in progress on LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Chip Cutter. And to keep up with Caroline Fairchild and all the news and commentary she's sharing, follow her on LinkedIn and Twitter at CFAIR1. This week's show was produced by Florencia Iriando and David Pond. We'll see you again soon. 